0: Welcome to the non-op series for the Minerals and Royalties podcast, where EMPs and
1: drilling capital meet the
0: minerals and royalties space. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Nicole Grady, CEO, and Adam Durlum, president of Northern All and Gas, who came back onto the podcast to walk through all their transactional and financing activities from the past 12 months. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Adam and Nick had to say. All right, Nick Adam, welcome back on the podcast. You know, I, I I didn't tell this to you guys up front because you have big egos and I don't want I don't want them to get any bigger. But I think you're the top podcast listened to in the last 12 months. So by popular demand, Adam Darlin and Nick O'Grady, welcome back to the the non op series.
2: There goes our all of our humility yeah, right there.
0: I
1: don't know <laughs> what to say about that.
2: Yeah, glad to be well, back.
1: Maybe 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 it's like a. a, a a bus crash that people just can't help.
2: Watch. <laughs> a dumpster fire. Yeah.
0: Well, very good. Well, let, let's do a quick recap. So you guys came on and we recorded last December 2022. And so let's just kind of do a, a quick recap of where energy stood at that point in time. You know, market cap and por- portfolio production, acreage, basin split, balance sheet, health, all that. And then we can kind of walk through the last 10 months or so some of the milestones and activities you guys have achieved and different themes in the market and and just take it from there. So over to you, let's wind back the clock, December, 2022, where was energy? Where was the market? All that good, Jess.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think we were producing, call it, um, you know, high seventies in terms of BOE per day We're two stream. So, you know, just under 80,000 barrels a day. Uh, We obviously closed a myriad of deals in the fourth quarter. And so we had a pretty big step up coming into the year. And I think the, the path uh, you know, was really heading towards, at that point in time, you know, with the growth of our, our mascot project and um, some other stuff to around maybe 100,000 barrels a day, um, I think we'll be well in excess of that now with some of the things we can get into in a bit later. Um, I think the market cap was around $2.5 billion in the fourth quarter. It's... Just about four today, so that's we've done one uh, stock offering and um, uh, in the interim, actually two, I should say. uh, And obviously, the share price is up, you know, over twenty five percent on the year, and so that's been meaningful. Um, You know, I think we're one of the top performing equities in energy this year, which is you know, it's been a a, a much more challenging year than we saw in the past in terms of acreage. I think we're up to about thirty five thousand net acres in the Permian and September. Was a milestone for the company. It was the first month ever in which our Permian volumes exceeded that of the Williston. Um, yeah,
2: I think we had about eleven thousand acres in December, about this time
1: last year, and up to yeah, about thirty-five, so tripled kind of our exposure in, yeah.
2: in the Permian. And I think Did we're ever up to, take? yeah, I think
1: we're about up to about ten thousand wells. Ironically, uh, as the business has shifted a little bit this year in terms of the structures of deal, the well count hasn't been rising as much as it had been in the past when we were buying more traditional non-op assets. I mean, I, we're still looking at traditional non-op assets, just the nature of the last few transactions. It's more concentrated because they've really been operated.
0: Yeah, no, and I'd, I'd love to dive into that in a, in a little more detail and let's use that to to kick things off. So I think when you look at this year, it's really been, fr- from the A&D perspective, it's been kind of these co-bids with operators. The mascot deal you guys closed that in January and topped up with some additional work interest. That's a drilling partnership. So these are not, you know, the non-op portfolio acquisitions that really were the highlight of 2022. So is that a, a, a result of opportunity set in the market or kind of an internal strategy to pursue those types of deals? So we'd love some insight there.
1: I mean, I think big picture, some of it's just happenstance. I mean, we worked on structures like this in the background for a long time. And uh, I think it's more a function of we're trying to allocate capital every day, right? So it's not that there have been a shortage of, of traditional non-op assets in the market. I'd say, you know, in the first half of this year, certainly they just weren't, those specific assets weren't terribly attractive. But I think I said this in a, a recent speech, but I wouldn't be surprised if our, our next transaction was another partnership style deal. I also would be equally not surprised if it was just a regular non-op type asset. I think as we've gotten bigger, I think it's more that our capabilities have have grown materially and so we can be more meaningful uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I think in the case of the two bigger ones we announced, they're they actually for quite specifically different reasons.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, our focus has always been on, on allocation of capital and quality and, and resilience. And assets. And so I think, you know, the fact that we've gotten these kind of co bidding deals done, you know, at the beginning of the year is, is more coincidence than anything. I, you know, all of this stuff comes in a linear fashion, right? And we've seen, you know, a whole host of, of non operated packages that have, have come our way, you know, in the year. And it's been kind of a matter of quality. And, you know, your conversion rate on this stuff is anywhere from call it. 10% to, to 30%. And so it's just a matter of swinging the bat and trying to manage the social aspects as much as it is, you know, taking a look at, at the quality
1: of the assets that are coming our way. I and mean, I think, Tim, to give you a frame of reference, like I think the first COVID opportunity we looked at of substance was maybe in the beginning of 2021, which was, I mean, right on the heels of us buying the Reliance properties. What I would point to that is that. It's just, there are a lot of stars that have to align in a co-bidding process. And so it hasn't, we've been talking about it, putting it in our materials for well over a couple of years now. And, you know, we would sometimes get a snarky comment. I see this in there, but you haven't done that. Have you, right? Uh, And you say, yeah, it's, it's challenging to get all those pieces together. And it was just, I guess, those stars aligning that allowed us to get the two big ones done this year.
2: Hard enough to get uh, a deal done with two counter- counterparties, let alone three. Yes. Yeah.
0: Have you ever found yourself wandering the halls of Nape, feeling lost in the sea of boots and attendees, and thinking to yourself, where the hell are all the Minerals and Non-Op executives? Well, my friends, worry no more. On February 8th, Nape will be launching their inaugural Minerals and Non-Op Hub, which will serve as a dedicated and central location for Minerals and Non-Op executives to network and show deals. For more information, please Google nape minerals and Nana Pub, or email exhibit at napexpo.com no that that's for sure i mean is the period of negotiations extended because there's more moving parts for something like this or is it just really getting everything to a line where you can get it across the line versus a straight asset sale
2: it's a little bit of both. I think on the front end, you know, whoever you're finding in terms of your dance partner, who you're co-bidding it with, you've got to really, you know, understand where they're coming from. I think we've had a number of conversations with, you know, some private equity groups that co-bidding, and they wanted to jam us with all of the the PDP assets and, and take the PUDs in order to right size the transaction. And there's you know, a number of different operational and financial reasons why that's generally not going to work. I think, you know, on the margin, maybe you can split things a little bit differently, but if you've got, you know, Northern taking all of the PDPs and and leaving the upside, you know, parent-child well issues and kind of what happens in terms of alignment on a prospective basis can get tricky. And so, you know, doing our independent underwriting of of the assets is, is how we approach it, you know, generally are comparing notes with our potential co-bidding counterparty there. And and then, you know, that's when you go to kind of bid stage. And then once you kind of get past that and you're going to docs, then really, I don't know that it necessarily takes longer. You're just doing more within that period of time because you've got to put together not only the purchase and sale agreement with the seller, but you've got to, you know, in the background, you're doing all of the cooperation and and joint operating agreements that kind of manage that alignment, not only going into the transaction, but on a prospective basis and solving for all of the aliens landing scenarios um, that you can envision.
1: Yeah. and I mean, I think from a, you know, Adam Julie is the master negotiator, um, you know, Half financial guy, half land man. He's he's a master at it. My observation would be on one hand, there are a handful of things in these operated transactions that are easier. I think the front end evaluation, because it's more concentrated, I mean, I think people don't recognize that a thousand non op acres with an average working interest of two and a half percent, the gross acreage and the number of sticks you have to develop and draw, it's just a massive amount of data. And those working interests can be wildly variable and they may have picked up individual bore interests. So that evaluation is really, really hard. And not to mention that the art beyond the science of the the actual well, you know, the well performance is, is the science. The art is really then, you know, really managing the expectations around what the development path is going to be. And that's honestly where most non-op deals go to die is that the non-op owner says, oh, they're going to drill a hundred wells on my lands and you say that would be every single rig they have and they say that's what's going to happen and you say no it's not (laughs) right and um on the operator deal it's much different because you're working with the operator you know exactly what the development plan is and how you're going to underwrite it um we still have those disagreements and philosophical views of you know one of the compliments adam and i got on this morning on a call this morning with one of our operators is that they said they really they really valued our conservative approach to well performance because i think you put two engineers in the same room, as Adam would say, you, you never get the same answer. Uh, and they're very prideful of how they do things. Some are aggressive and some are conservative. As an honor, kind of just have to be negative. That's just the way we have to be. And I think that's been helpful in finding the right partners that kind of align with that, where it gets, I think, also beneficial is just the the cost sharing and the number of eyes. So the diligence process you have, you know, we generally use both title and environmental attorneys, as well as our, you know, our, our contract attorneys. You're sharing those costs with with the operator. We all, our respective business development teams are all evaluating the same thing. So I feel like you cover more ground. To Adam's point, trying to get all of these agreements to tie together is challenging. And that is the the, the panic attack at two in the morning, or in my case, falling asleep and snoring on a final call Um, (laughs) because we're so tired. That's the part that is really the most difficult But I think not only do you have to win the deal, you have to agree with each other. And I think that that's been the part where most of these things never really get off the ground. But I will say there are are distinct advantages, and then we have to manage around those risks. I mean, I think... One of the risks I'll hit head on is just, you know, you recognize that whoever the operator you're you're doing this transaction with might not always be the operator. And you have to prepare for that. That's that alien's landing. And in this case, the aliens definitely came very quickly. Yes, faster than we thought. Yeah, no,
0: it's, uh, you know, small fish eaten by medium fish, big fish eating medium fish while he's eating small fish. I mean, we're seeing that unfold right now. And so the consolidation landscape is we're entering a very interesting period perhaps, you know, a repeat of the late 90s when the majors and super majors were formed, right? So it's interesting times for sure. We'll revisit that um, later in the episode. A couple more questions. You mentioned that you're underwriting the deal really from your own perspective. I'm just curious. So the, the, the deal, you, you, the joint acquisition uh, with Earthstone of Novo and then the joint acquisition with Vital on Forge's assets, when the bank is running the process, are you guys, I guess... When operate deals come to market, are you kind of now putting that in the funnel and evaluating them? And then the bank knows you're in the mix and then plays matchmaker and starts par- partnering you up with potential bidders because they know they can kind of feel that to different bidders. Or are you starting these relationships really? Hey, we think this is the right operator for this. Let's approach them or they approach you guys. How, how has it gone about in terms of the, the marriage that you're, you're forming and, and
1: going in on, on the bids? It's, yeah, uh, I was say we have all fun- of
2: the above.
1: Uh, we have some funny stories. I want Adam to have the thunder on that one I'll, about the one process, the first one this year, right? But uh, I won't steal that story because it's pretty amusing. But I would say. We are pretty much invited to every operated process now uh, that's marketed. And it's beneficial to the bankers because we represent for a good bidder whose financing may or may not be as, as perfect, a trump card for them to maximize the value. I mean, again, that's, again, making a lot of assumptions, but they want us around in these processes. Sometimes honestly, you know, you are being used, right? The, they'll have a, a big non-op portion of the asset and they'll ask for an allocation to make sure that whoever the eventual winner is pays full value for that non-op or or, or things like that. But I don't know, you want to tell the, some of the actual war stories.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think in the case of Novo or in, in any of these assets that's coming to market, we're always taking a look at you know who the offset operators are. We've obviously got a view on who can do well where and, and so in, in that particular instance that was one where, you know, we had approached Robert and and company on on kind of partnering with that one up front, just kind of given their operations in the area and offset. And and so that one was, it was a little bit easier from the outset in terms of kind of finding who we were going to partner with a lot of times. And it depends on, you know, the sensitivities around who the seller is or or who the bank is running the process. You know, a lot of times we might be going into this blind. And so we'll do our underwriting on you know the PDPs and the WIPs. And then as soon as we get married up, then, you know, have the collaborative conversations on the development program and whatnot, because a lot of that we're you know, beholden to the, you know, the operator who we're going to be Partnering with on to kind of finalize that underwriting, and so you know, a lot of times we're getting to the end of of these you know bid processes and whatnot, and you know we might have a, a couple of folks in mind, and bankers are always checking in with us and and you know wondering where we're at if we've found someone. And in one particular instance, you know, we really hadn't found the right operator at the time, and the banker kind of laughed at us and said, "Well, that's interesting because." Four of the operators that I've spoken with today have said that you are their non-operating partner on the transaction. And so we had no idea who these people were, but apparently uh, were, were popular in that yeah. regard.
1: I mean, in the case of Novo, we really we got a preview look from from the RVC team who was marketing it. We looked at our map. We were surrounding the area. We looked at Earthstone was right next door. Robert had talked to us a few times over the last couple of years about partnering. Obviously, they've been on a similar big growth trajectory. And we just, it was more a function of like, uh, you know, couldn't do that movie because we were doing another one. You know, well, we were in the middle of something they were doing, you know, their Chisholm and some of the other ones. So, you know, I'd seen him at um, a city conference in January and we had, we had talked about be great to do that. And I just picked up the phone and called him. I mean, Adam and I had a 30-second conversation and I said, this is this would be perfect. And then we looked at it, just simple math said it would be too big for them. It was certainly too big for us. Uh, and it would make you know a great kind of partnership. We had a feeling and it was supported by the process that our teams had similar cultures and, and views on things. I'd say that it was terrific. I mean, I think in case of the Vital Team, we'd been having these conversations on and off for two years. And it was really about finding one that we were both gonna be interested in at the same time and ready to go.
0: Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling 110 million in value, with deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or Weber only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at Toby at the Texas Mineral Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Wilson. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests, or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to FNCenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at FarmersNational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers if any of these things are challenges in your business then opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution for more information please visit www.opportune.com what about the perspective of the the co-bidder the operator on working with a non-op company versus using other types of finance, you know, is this a moment in time where you guys are more attractive than other forms of finance? Or from, from what I hear, you know, a, a company is going to prefer to have another oil and gas company alongside them versus a financial institution if if they could have their way. But maybe it's just a cost of capital or availability of, of capital. And that isn't as readily available these days. I'm just curious from, are we going to see more of this going forward with, with you guys and then down market with other smaller folks? Or do you think there's an accordion here of non-op COVIDs given certain market conditions, and then that goes away and you guys go back to doing asset deals and then you know it becomes more opportune to do non-op COVIDs again, et cetera, et cetera. Because you know, during when I look at override financing in the mineral space, override financing I think is a great tool in severe bid ass spread environments where you can do some sort of reversionary structure. The main override deals were done in 2020, right? Uh, when pricing was there's just a huge gap, and I, I don't think that override financing is a is is the top choice in a frothy market. You just you don't need yes. to to give that up. So I'm just curious from, from that lens.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I'll just give my two cents on an override. Um, you know, anything that says, you know, a, a 10% return, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but a 1% change to your revenue can have a 10 or 20% change to your your return on a working interest asset. And so I agree those capped kind of reversionary returns where they kind of get their, their moe and then they move on, that, that they're going to be minorly damaging versus a true override. But I think, look, We've been struggling with this, you know. We've been doing our second ESG report, and it's a lot more holistic. And we were talking with you know these consultants about it. And I've been really struggling with this in the sense that we're 100% an oil and gas company. I don't think we're an EMP, and at the end of the day, we are a capital provider. Uh, we're something else. I don't know exactly what we are, uh, and maybe we're just a non-op. Um, we are more reservoir and performance and, and financially focused. But one thing we can go to these parties with that we can say, we're a permanent owner of these assets. We're a perpetuity, a new uh, a company. We are not looking to buy these and sell them in five years. We're not looking to be bought out on the back end. Our capital is permanent. And so I would actually tell you, I think the cost of capital with us as a partner is, is significant, even in today's interest rate environment, is probably materially higher than a financial instrument. However, the term security, and I say this as a former securities investor, is it's a security, right? And that means that in the case of a security, particularly a, a, a debt-like security, you know, and so you could pick your poison in terms of that, you know, we, we've seen a myriad of from the ABS to whatever, VPPs. And what happens with a VPP is whatever the cost of capital is, if the wells underperform, you have to make it up. So in the end of the day, it's a piece of debt, right? Meaning that if the wells underperform, you have to just give them more working interest in the wells because they have to get their money and then get out. A lot of these structures are designed so that there's you know, some sort of amortization so that within five years, they're getting their money out and moving on. We're a permanent owner. And so, what it means is we share equally in the upside. A security might not, but we we also share equally in the downside. And we're built to manage that risk, right? Uh, for a for an Earthstone, they all they have to do is send us a, a jib and a revenue check. Uh, we have all the the internal uh, machinations to deal with everything else. We do our own work, our own reserves. We don't need our handheld. If something goes wrong, it's part part of doing the business. And I just say that. Almost every counterparty we have dealt with in one of these structures has done a financial party, whether it was a drill co or a VPP or some form of financial engineering prior. And they're once bitten twice shy because they do a PDP sell down to a financial entity. Who's trying to make them fixed basis? And every time the wells go down for maintenance, they're getting angry phone calls of why their check was lower that month. Or they're doing all the back office work; they don't have to do any of that with us. And so we are the easy button. We're not. We're certainly not the cheapest, um, but we're also looking to do this over and over again. And so when bad things happen, and they do happen, we don't. We don't blink. We take our lumps. And I would say too, with that, I think
2: you know, with the structured finance, we generally run into that more so with, you know, kind of like a minority interest sell down type of process as opposed to like a co-bidding type of process. So, you know, more of the drill codes, maybe there's obligation wells and they've only got two obligation wells, but they would rather cube develop it and they don't necessarily have the capital year marked for it. And so could you put together a 12 to 24 month type of drilling program that, you know, allows them to kind of go through and, and mow it down. And and that's where I think, it, you know, we can be helpful. So it's, it's maybe a little bit of a different animal than your typical kind of co-bidding
0: exercise. And then, you know, alignment, this goes into just getting everything to come together, but alignment's the biggest concern on y'all's end, right? And so undivided stake in the portfolio being acquired is, definitely one way to create alignment, the JOA and how it gets developed going forward. But what if that asset is, you know, uh, not a majority of the the the, the new, new co going forward, right? Or not new co, no. it, it, you know, you have a, a substantial position, then they do this bolt on. It's a material deal for you guys. But then how, how do you get certainty or alignment around that asset within the broader combined portfolio post transaction? Have you guys looked at creating some sort of alignment across the broader portfolio and instead of just just that individual asset? Because I've, I've been hired on a few consulting gigs to help source, override, and non-op co-investment partners on certain deals. And those are the, all the, the different considerations that the investors want to know, right, um, when they're going into something. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think the way that we've handled it has been in kind of an enhanced joint operating agreement right? When you're going into this. And so you've got that inherent alignment with the undivided interest. And then you're, you know, trying to solve for what, what happens when things change. And so as far as, you know, keeping them focused on, on the asset that we just bought or a change in operatorship or finding the next, you know, nice bright shiny thing, there's generally some sort of development obligation and and depending on how you know it's going to be asset specific in terms of how we're underwriting value. And so along with development obligations, there's going to be leasehold maintenance and you know to the extent that there's, you know, CDCs or you know, expiries or those types of things. We're a non-operator, and so we're beholden to what that operator is going to do. And so we've got different guardrails that we've put in place with our various operators to kind of do that. And then on the flip side, to the extent that. Know certain plays are still getting delineated, or you know, you're turning a a short lateral into a two miler or a three miler. We've also put in you know various kind of AMIs, um, so that to the extent that either northern or the operator picks up additional interest, you've still got you know that proportionate right to pick up your share and kind of maintain that you know one third, two third type of split. So, those
1: are. The types of things that we've discussed and and solved for at at a high level. Yeah. And so, I mean, the way I would describe it is that the underwritten drilling plan, let's just say that, you know, and these are made up numbers, but let's just say 30% of the allocated value when we buy something is to the undeveloped land, right? That's what we paid for. That's based on a proposed development plan. So the JOA Adam's talking about memorializes that so that we know we're going to extract the value, uh, regardless of what changes, whether it be operatorship or to his point, the new shiny thing that they, you know, they're obligated to develop it in the way they, they said they would. And, you know, the example I would give you where you don't have these rights, we, one of our first out of basin assets we looked at was this tiny little Marcellus asset. And it was operated by a big Kahuna uh, Marcellus operator, and they weren't meeting, they were paying um, penalties to the midstream system because they weren't drilling enough wells to meet those obligations. And they were suing the operator saying, you need to come here and drill it, and it's in our respective interest. You're paying the fees, and we're paying the fees. And to this big Kahuna operator, it just didn't matter. They were like, well, okay, we're paying a fee here, we've got other things and other fish to fry, and we don't really care. And you're trying to avoid those issues, but also what's really important is by doing it through the joint operating agreement, as opposed to on some other form or fashion, it runs with the land. So when Earthstone becomes Permian Resources, they inherit those obligations. And frankly, the best way you can solve for that always, Tim, is buy really good assets. If you buy assets, you know this was a top quartile asset to, to uh, Earthstone, and I think it'll be a top quartile asset to, to Permian. And so we know they're going to want to develop it. And that's why that asset snobbery that we really pay a lot of attention to generally makes you smarter over time anyway, because anyone can engineer a return. But when the macro changes and it always does and when it's going to go through a period where your things are out of favor, you want to make sure that those assets are still going to be front and center to the people who are operating for you.
2: Yeah, and that's not to say that things don't change, right? I mean, I think every single one of these, we've had had to pivot in some form or fashion, and we've had to come up with some mutually agreeable amendment, and we'd have a commercial conversation. We'd paper it up with, you know, two to three pieces of paper, and we're on our way. Yeah, right? yeah.
0: Now that you guys have done a couple of, of substantial ones like this this year, do you think going forward it, it's a less complicated, less brain damage type exercise, or these are just so nuanced and customized for every deal? I mean, I'm just imagining for a deal, deals of this size, how many different rabbit holes you have to go down to tie up all these scenarios. Is it, not, you know, my head hurts just thinking about it. Coming out of two of these, though, is it kind of like, oh, I've seen this before. Let's apply this. Clause and that clause—is it simpler, or is it really starting from scratch every single time?
2: No, I think there's definitely a blueprint that you can work off of, and then to your point, it, it's fact specific. And so, are you tweaking, you know, different, you know, governance or you know affirmative covenants, whatever it might be, and then just kind of understanding where the sensitivities are. You're having a lot of those conversations up front before you're even getting to bid date. And, you know, the fact that you've got an undivided interest, you don't necessarily have some visceral reaction when you're going to paper these things up. I mean, there's definitely, you know, nuances to every single one of these and, and the devil is is in the details. But by and large, you know, I think, you know, coming out of the Forge transaction, we used largely a lot of that template going into the Novo one. And so I think we can continue to kind of rinse and repeat. It's just going to be fact specific as to, you know, what's the lay of the land and and how do we paper up some of these things that we may not have encountered or underwrote on prior transactions. So I think you'll always be polishing these things up, but by and large, the, the
1: format and the framework is there. Yeah. And I think that the, the good part for us is that the governance that we're discussing, it might seem that you're you're laying out all these demands, but it's really the stuff that's in the operator's desire and best interest to begin with. So they want to do these things anyway. So you're not asking a lot. You're just sort of saying, let's put it on paper in case something was to change. And of course, we're reasonable. So if oil goes to $40, we probably don't want to drill those wells. But you know it becomes pretty easy. In the case of Forge, I think we allocated well north of 80% of the value just to the PDP. We paid very, we got, a lot of acreage with it, but we didn't give it much value. And so what we did was we took the high quality development and put that in the plan. And the rest of it is almost like a traditional non-op asset because it's pure optionality. We frankly don't care. I mean, we, we get all that it, it's held. It's not expiring. And as time develops and well control in those areas comes around, we'll be we'll be ready to move. And so that's been one of the the neater parts about this is that we haven't really faced a lot of resistance. It's not like you're you're holding someone over a barrel because ultimately we're both talking about, Hey, this, this is your idea. Let's, this makes sense. Let's just put this in, in there and make sure that we design it. So if things go awry, We don't want people to drill come hell or high water. We want to drill when it's going to make money, and so do they. And so we try to design it around that, but also give us and our investors surety of return. Uh,
2: Yeah, that's right. And there's always pushes and pulls on the drill schedule and things that come up and, and whatnot. And we can solve for that on that specific asset. But at the same time, because we're actively managing the rest of our portfolio to the extent that something gets Delayed, we've always got our ground game um, and kind of lean into that. We understand, you know, what we're going to be putting online in the next 12 to 18 months and, you know, in month to month or three month intervals. If there's something that pops up, then there's other ways for us to kind of solve for that by backfilling or letting, you know, our organic asset um, that's unrelated to the stuff that we're buying kind of pull and, and backfill, you know, those potential gaps.
0: Yeah, can you just for everyone listening, Adam? You know feeders that we'll will be sending y'all you know, deal flow. Expand upon your ground game real quick, and just what exactly is still worth your y'all's attention? I mean, you're doing two, three, four, five hundred million dollar deals. You know, it, there's probably a scenario where someone goes, God. Uh, could send this to nog but is it just a waste of time like what makes sense you guys have done 13 ground game deals this year so far just under a thousand net acres right so
1: is that like you said Uh, we just put put some out this morning tim i forget yeah Yeah. it's like north of 30 i want
2: to say it's like 31 and call it you know 25 No, I can't remember off the top of my head, 25 net wells going to be the ground game. And so uh, we still view ourselves you no know, differently than, you know, when we were half the size as the dustbusters, right? And so we're still looking at, you know, deal sizes from $500,000 up to call it 50 million. Anything in that kind of realm is is kind of considered our, our ground game stuff. I think, you know, as we continue to scale the business, does it make sense for us to look at a 1% working interest, big deal, small deal, all takes the same amount of time, but we've got the infrastructure in place to be doing, you know, five yeah. to 10 of these, you know, concurrently with each other. Yeah. So I, I don't okay. think we're going to ever change our stripes in terms of being able to, to kind of execute on the, on the ground game. And I think, you know, it's anything from a heads up AFE proposal to, you know, some acreage that has some sightline line to development some of our you know largest operators that have these you know drilling obligations that we alluded to earlier and they want to go in and cube develop it and but they want to do it on a unit by unit basis and so we've got these kind of baby drill codes going at the same time we cobble together you know operated positions and have no desire to operate and so we'll bring in you know some of our operating partners and and farm it out to them. So I I feel like we've, you know, gotten creative in terms of overall deal structure. And it helps because, you know, like Nick said, we're a perpetuity entity. And so if we're going to own these assets forever, it gives us the ability to
1: kind of solve for whatever those social issues might be on, on the seller side as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll i just use a, a brief story to give you a frame of reference. We do a bi-weekly senior business meeting here. All the senior people here at the company and um, Katie, uh, who's, who really runs point on our ground game uh, transactions here. We, went, we go around the room and sort of just say, hey, what's going on with you? And everyone grumpily describes what their latest problems are. <laughs> and I say, anything going on with you, Katie, yesterday? She said, well, uh, not much. Uh, I have 12 ground game Deals in process right now. I, we all just started laughing because she's just overwhelmed. So I think we're still as busy there as ever. Um, you know, ironically, we put out a release this morning in which we spent a little bit more money in the second quarter, third quarter than we had expected. And part of that was in, in May and June when oil prices were really wobbling kind of into early July. I mean, I think it was kind of got into the 60s for a bit and in the lower to mid 70s. And this really was kind of a lot of the stuff got completed in the third quarter, but was in process in the second quarter. We, we typically have our, our greatest success at the end of the year uh, as budgets get exhausted. And we really saw the whites of people's eyes and we saw people jamming to get things done. And of course, everyone wants to get it done by the end of the second quarter. We tend to drag it on into, into the third, but we had enormous success, probably one of our best quarters ever just recently. And I think it's a Testament that you can't take your eye off the ball. I mean, I think that our view is that that's why we've kept our team tight and small uh, we don't want to get too big for our britches because these bigger transactions are exciting and they're you know we we love we love doing them and all those things. But at the end of the day, you can't really lose lose where you came from, and these small things can really add up to big returns over time. It's just that I think that what is changing in this ground game is that. What would have been far too risky for us at one point in time uh, is now more of a run of the mill transaction when we're trying, we're solving some of our bigger operators, 30, 50% working interest problems that we just simply couldn't have looked at three or four years ago because one thing goes awry and it could, you know, frankly blow a year up. And I don't, at this point it would be a, you know a a blip in the water, if anything.
2: And I think that's where we're we're more competitive, right? If you think about the competitive landscape out there even a private equity fund that's got, you know, 150 a $200 million commitment, and there's a, you know, quote, unquote, ground game deal that comes up where the operator's looking to lay off 50% and go drill 10 wells, that's going to be tough for them to, to allocate to. And so then what does the operator do? And, and I think that's where we've been able to build some solid relationships and, and get things done where we want to and, and where we need to in terms of hurdle rates.
0: Hey, guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company who, since 1929, has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit FNCenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at FarmersNational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Powder River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. With deal sizes ranging from 50 k upwards of $5 million, and 1.5 NRAs, upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at the Texas Mineral Company dot com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back-office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day accounting and back-office operations, and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. No, that, that's a great point. I mean, there's no way around that conversation other than scale to stay diversified. So unique position for you guys, for sure. Let, let's talk about financing these deals and really the balance sheet side. So doing a quick recap, in early January, you close the mascot project deal, $320 million, that was funded with cash on hand, operating free cash flow, and then some borrowings from your revolving credit facility. You have the uh, the, the Vital Forge deal, announced in May, closed at the end of June for just under or about 168 million. That was that was funded by by cash, I believe, right? And then you have the deal, the Novo deal that you co-bid with Earthstone. That's announced in mid-June, closes mid-August for four just under 470 million, funded by cash and then borrowings from your from your revolving credit facility. So You guys have done a bunch of different things. We'll we'll start in the beginning of May. You offered a a private placement under Rule 144A and Regulation S, uh, 500 million, 8.75% senior notes due in 2031. Break that down, Nick. One thing that I found interesting is the Regulation S, which for those who don't know what that is, it's an offering to non-U.S. investors. Was that private placement, was there appetite internationally? I, I just found that interesting when I was reading up on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bulk of our bondholders are, are US, you know, big, you know, big complexes like BlackRock, Western Asset Management, T-Row, people like that. Um, I think that actually the bulk of high yield bonds being issued today are just uh, are just private placements. Uh, it's pretty rare to see them registered. I don't think any of our securities in the bond side are registered today. And there's a reason for that. Uh, there, there are some slight benefits to a registered security, but not much. It does broaden the uh, horizon uh, of investors potentially. I think you know to to, to, to some of that that bond, we we hadn't seen much in the first few months of the year. Back in you know the end of twenty one, when we did Veritas, we issued equity. It was our I think third equity offering in the year. Um, and then obviously we went on an acquisition binge, more by accident than anything else. Just a lot of old things came back, and new things went fast all at once. We did a convertible bond, which I would just say that if there's one security I'm proud of, it's that, which is that it's a convertible bond in name only. We used a very bespoke instrument so that it has all the benefits, the low coupon, and that was really when rates were first starting to get quite high. I think the coupon on it's less than 4% and but it but really the dilution from it is, is effectively zero because it's a cash bond until i think the stock's north of $50 and even then uh frankly you can manage around that if you so if you so wish because we we actually control the derivative that sets the price so that turned out enough to really do all those acquisitions for cash through mascot but we were still post mascot carrying over $500 million on a revolver and i think one of the things if you you know i'm a student of the markets and if you look The yield curve coming into this year, even when rates were really peaking, was very, very, very backwardated. The assumption was that rates were going to go up, the economy was going to crash, and rates were going to go right back down. You hear a lot of higher for longer now, uh, call it six months, four or five months later. But at the time... The view was that all oh, rates are going to go right back down. Well, the irony is that a bond, you know, which is eight years in length, the pricing of that bond is based on the yield curve, a spread to that yield curve, right? So while you know short-term rates might have been five percent, the long-term rate at that point might have been like four or three and a half. And so what it meant was that our revolving credit facility, which floats with SOFR, was just over eight percent and we could do an eight-year bond with no covenants for about nine. And so that 1%, to take that risk and recreate that liquidity, it was sort of a no brainer. I, I do think, you know, we were one of the first high yield issuers of the year, uh, certainly of our size. And the rate, I think, did take our investors back a little bit. You know, now there have been a flurry of bonds, right? Of, you know, Civitas and Earthstone did a bond, and I think Earthstone's was north of 10%. And so people have gotten adjusted to those rates. But, you know, when you saw a high single digit bond, people were like, oh my God, that's really expensive money. Um, the one thing I tell you is that the cool part is being an asset buyer is that. That nine percent bond floats into the asset market, so people. That's why people don't get PDP PB ten anymore because that's not a, a spread, right? You saw a flurry of PDP buyers using, you know, asset backed securitizations at five percent, uh, you know, getting a sixty percent advance rate on that on that asset, you know, a year or two ago. Uh, and now if they tried to do that now, it's probably even that's a secured asset that's amortizing and it's probably closer to 9%. So it drives up the discount rate. And so it allows us to buy assets cheaper. Uh, I think so at the time, I think people were like, wow, that's weird. And uh, honestly, the credit markets have actually, they're, they're probably materially more expensive today than they were then. Uh, and I think, our personal view. And, and I, I say this to the board who's been yelling at me about high cost debt since I've been here. I mean, my main reason they hired me was to get rid of all our debt and that it was so expensive. Uh, they didn't even blink. They were like, yeah, that's a no brainer. You need to do that because you know, they understand that liquidity is paramount. So that, that funded there when when it came to forge, w- we did an equity offering and we did one for more than the the cost of forge in and of itself. And also that, that I think took our investors aback a little bit and, uh, This is what I would say about that, which was that we felt NOVA was coming out at a time where there were four major large assets for sale in the marketplace. Two of the people we would have been most fearful for to buy that asset had just bought other assets. And so we felt that they would be full. And while we would typically think we have less than a 30% chance, uh, Earthstone also had a relationship with, uh, with NCAP, right? They were partly owned and NCAP was the owner of Nova. And so we felt at least we would have a seat at the table. And so we raised the, a little bit of additional equity. When we went and announced the Nova, we were able to do it for all cash. And the investors understood, um, you know, a few weeks ago, we, while we were at your conference, uh, we did a spot secondary bought deal and similarly, I think our investors are kind of scratching their heads because you know we have had just a you know just under four hundred million dollars on a billion two revolver, plenty of liquidity. At the rate we're generating cash, was going to be gone in a few quarters. So investors sat there and said, well, you know, why would you do this? And the answer is really simple, which is that de-risking a, a future transactions is critical. We don't know where the marketplace is going to be. We, we went through this with the bond in the same time, which is that. You need to take money when you can, not when you need to. And we have historically done just-in-time financing, but we believe we're in a spot now where our investors understand we've been good stewards of capital. Adam and I 70% of our compensation is based on the three and five year performance of our equity. So if it was just to dilute the equity to protect ourselves, we would not get ourselves paid. We're we're paid to make the stock work. So when you're diluting your investors, that question of why is because we see what's in front of us and we want to be prepared to act. Uh, We're frankly overwhelmed as an organization. There's so much going on. There's so much high quality stuff. We've got so many problems we can potentially solve and returns to generate. And so we always want to be in a position to be able to move. And I think we're in that position now. And so right now we're, you know, we're effectively, you know, nearly undrawn on our revolver and ready to go and ready for the next wave of MA if and when it comes.
0: No, that, that's well put. I mean, you you would understand better than anyone. I mean, there's pockets of opportunity to access capital and whether it's the the credit markets or, or the equity markets, they, that window can close very quickly and it's out of your control. So when the deal comes up on the private market, they're not necessarily as concerned about that but you know having the liquidity on hand and maybe there's a short-term sacrifice with share performance um in order to be able to strike and then perform in the future makes a ton of sense and then you know in in august you guys increase your borrowing base as well by 200 million up to 1.8 billion so just an, an additional part of the war chest that you guys have going into 2024 right
1: I mean we we are parents of our of our of our shareholders truly I mean that we're fiduciary we're fiduciaries we're obligated our goal is to grow the profits over time if we wanted to do you know the most popular thing always would be and we did this empirical analysis is you know buy back shares and dividend out all your our money so we went back 2 years into our own financial model at the where the business was and just did that took every dollar and just back stock and paid out dividends. And I can tell you the stock wouldn't be near $40 today had we done that, right? It would have been the thing that pleases people in the short term, but you really need to think long-term and it doesn't mean doing, giving the people what they want all the time. And that, that, that's difficult for me personally, because I, I spend so much time on the other side of the table and you know, you might be ruining someone's day when you, when you go and you do that. But the eye is really on creating the value for our long-term investors. I'd say I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, our long-term, you know, sticky mutual fund owners have all been fully supportive and they totally get it. And they trust that we're going to do the right thing over time. And we will, but, you know, I tell you, Tim, like going back to 2020, You know, we had not completed the financial sort of resurgence of the business. We were probably 75% of the way there. And then the pandemic happened. And effectively, we were limited during 2020 to the cash flow we were generated. And we we bought everything we could in sight. Uh, But I think we spent of the $200 million, we spent 150 of that was, you know, mini acquisitions because no one was drilling. Um, And that set up, you know, a great 2021. But if we had been in the position we're in today, we could have done a lot more damage and created a lot more value for our investors because people forget this is a cyclical industry, right? Um, And I will tell you, the signals here are so inverted in the sense that, you know, things look the cheapest on oil and gas when prices are high. Your cash flow is the highest when oil, uh, you know, oil prices are uh, But it's really in those periods when things are troughing that you need to be prepared to act because that's ultimately the, the best value creation tool is playing those cycles. I mean, I think you, when you look at natural gas today we got a lot of natural gas assets shopped to us in 2022 and it was tempting. They looked amazing. We looked at some Hanesville assets. They looked amazing. Uh, And then I would get all excited and Adam kind of slapped me around and say, you really want to buy something? It's $7 gas. And I like, Oh, sorry. You know, I forgot. Just kidding. You know, now, you know, gas is around three bucks with a long-term curve. That's, that's hedgeable and in contango. That's maybe, that might be a scary signal in some ways, but it's a, you know, the risk profile, the convexity to, to those assets is a lot better today than it was then.
0: Amazing. Well, Listen, this this has been great. I, I'd like to wrap up the episode with with really one kind of final question and observation uh, over to you guys. It's comment on just the mass consolidation that's happening in the upstream space. Uh, I alluded to it earlier in the episode. You know, is this the late 90s, chapter two? You know, Exxon acquires Pioneer for just about 60 billion a couple of weeks ago. The Chevron acquisition of Hess was announced earlier this week for 53 billion. There's rumors of Devon, Chesapeake, conoco being on the hunt and you know i was listening to a a little interview that mark viviano at Cambridge gave on cnbc or one of these shows and he said it's it's an arms race to to grab market share right now and and consolidation for the big boys so curious to hear your thoughts on that and then what is what does that mean for a non-op player like nog when someone of the size of exxon starts rolling folks up Where, where where's the role for an nog
1: I mean, I think, look, um, you know, public companies are kind of like a school of fish. You know, one turns and they all turn and uh, they're all fearful. Um, you know, I started in in the energy, you know, patch in 2000. You You've had a bruising 90s uh, and then you had a period where, uh, you know, kind of post the Iraq war that, that oil prices were stronger. Natural gas, you know, the Gulf of Mexico started to roll over and, and sort of unconventional gas was really in its infancy. And so gas prices went from a buck fifty to four fifty, which, you know, that's like $200 oil in the gas world, right? Uh, it was a huge bounty. Uh, what you saw were a lot of the mid midsize independents. I mean, names you, you probably don't even remember. Westport Resources, Patina, you know, uh, there were Tom Brown. There were a bunch of these companies that mid-cap companies that had made it through the 90s, had built scale. And then, you know, things were finally a little bit better and it's sort of a cry uncle and it's time to go. And I think you're seeing that in some cases, I think that higher prices have helped fix some some pretty troubled businesses in the last few years. And I think and I certainly wouldn't put Pioneer or Hess in in that category. but I think that it, it gets to the point where, you know, they have to sit there and say, okay, why do I exist? What do I offer? If you look at the average mid and even large cap independent today, and then you flip through their decks, you're not going to find a lot of difference. I mean, it's really hard to distinguish one from the other. They all pay out healthy dividends. Their balance sheets are all strong. They all have good assets. They're all growing a little bit. And so then you sit there and say, the only real value creation is if you can merge and cut costs out of the business. And they've all been well-paid because their equities have performed better. And so the management kind of holding that back, you know, finally kind of starts to subside. There are a lot of managements that, you know, they're self-interested, and perhaps they don't have quite the shrewd governance that our board has, um, right? But what I what I would say is that I don't think I think that consolidation in many cases can be really good for us. So I think the, the Earthstone being sold to Permian, as an example, is something that will be really good for us. I think it'll we'll see material benefits in in drilling costs over time, just from a bigger scaled organization with more buying power. And in that respect, it's it's been really beneficial to us. If you go back to that sort of late 90s, early 2000s, though, it it tends to go through these new renewal cycles. I think people are trying to figure out what the follow-up act to shale is. I don't know what it is, but there will be one. And so I think all these people go away. You know, two or three of the private equity groups we've worked with who have sold out are already calling us and they're back at it right uh and so i think a lot of these these people will re-emerge with with new when new opportunities do and, and we'll be there to help partner with them be along the way but look i think it's it's a it's a function of the maturity i think it's a function but it also is a defensive measure by many companies that do want to exist and maybe they're big enough too and so they want to make sure they get even bigger to make sure they they exist and i think that's part of it you know in the case of pioneer it's just you know uh, a freak, monstrous asset, you know, big company that provides a lot of scale. Um, and I think that, you know, for an Exxon, it gives them a, a 20 year window to develop that Permian asset. I, I understand it strategically 100%. Uh, you know, obviously, Hess was sitting on a monstrous resource in, in, in Guyana, and that's, I think that should speak for itself. But I, what I would say is, I don't think it's an end game. I think it's sort of a, it's sort of a, you know, a birth, a death, and then there'll be a rebirth at some point down the road. Yeah, I
2: mean, you asked you know, what does that mean for, you know, Northern? And, and Nick touched on, you know, capital efficiency and, and, you know, potentiality to lower well costs if you're, you know, driving a bigger ship. The other thing that I would add, especially from a business development standpoint is that any one of these EMPs, you know, operators, typically, you know, 15 to 20% of that portfolio is, is non operated. And so we've already been having those conversations with investment grade companies about, you know, how to socialize their non-op because everybody's got a budget, especially when, you know, you're paying out, you know, X percent and dividends and share buybacks and want to go drill your own wells. And so how do you solve for that? Or how do you solve for these obligation wells that we've been talking through throughout this episode? And so I think we'll continue to be able to, you know, find different opportunities as the landscape evolves dealing with our operating partners and because we already have a lot of those relationships and we're their largest non-operating partner I think it gives us a leg up in terms of kind of initiating those conversations and getting things
1: done. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up that the 66 acres which represented our first Permian purchase was exactly that it was a uh... An independent bought another independent and with it got a large non-op portfolio and started selling it off in pieces. We actually didn't even figure out because there were so many parties involved at the time until the afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> there were about eight parties to it, but we didn't, uh, in the end we figured out that they were cleaning up the non-op portfolio that they had acquired with the other independent we expect to see more of that so generally speaking you know you know you, you know if the, the if the ducks are quacking you go get your shotgun right and so i think that you know our view is whenever these things happen it creates some opportunity for us and uh, you know we're hungry guys and we'll, we'll be there for it
0: awesome alright gents well thanks again for coming on another great episode and you know if i don't see it before the end of the year happy holidays and looking forward although I, I, I was joking with you the other day at the roast. I see you in Houston more than groups that are actually based here. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, my wife I can uh, move that. down here. It's about time, you <laughs> yeah.
1: know. Yeah.
0: But no, Bob, uh, in all seriousness, thanks again for for coming on. I uh, appreciate you coming to the event a couple weeks ago and congrats on winning the Non-Off Company of the Year again. It's well-deserved and looking forward to uh, circling back early next year and reconnecting. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and
1: see you next time.